Today's reading is taken from Galatians chapter 12, verses 11 to 21. I'm sorry, I don't know which page it is in the Bibles. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is justified by observing the law. Sorry, is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. But as we start, let's ask for God's help. Thank you, our Father, that the Lord Jesus has loved us and given himself for us. And we pray, Father, as we now reflect on the implications of his work, that you, Father, would help us to rejoice more and more in him. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you've been like me this week and you've been captivated by this BBC documentary on the Blair and Brown years. Or maybe you've actually got a life and you get out and see people, that sort of thing. If, if you have got a life, it is a documentary that goes into great detail about the clash between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, Blair, Blair rather, these two big figures uh, in the Labour government. And one of the things that's quite striking in that documentary is how those disagreements are regrettable. Uh, when Tony Blair or Gordon Brown are pressed on the details about what happened you know, in the deal or um, when they're uh, having a, a bit of an argument, they don't really want to talk about it. They kind of brush it off. They, they focus on the successes rather than the fallouts. But it's very striking, isn't it? Because our passage this morning is the complete opposite. See, actually, these, we see these two big figures in the early church clash 
very publicly. And more than that, Paul doesn't shy away from it. In fact, he records it in great detail in this letter to the Galatians. And God, in his wisdom, through his Holy Spirit, has preserved these very words for us so that we might see the details of this clash in a very public way. And the question that raises is why is this disagreement so crucial? Why is it so important that it's aired and recorded for the Galatian churches and for us? And what are we meant to do with that? I want to start by thinking about what the clash is about, what gives rise to it, then move on to why it's important, and then finish by uh, working out what we're to take from it. So first of all, though, what's the issue here? Well, Peter's mistake is described in verse 12. We read that before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And so here's the deal. Peter gets these visitors from Jerusalem, from James, and they whisper something in his ear, which means that he begins to separate. If we could have the next slide. Um, that should show that. Uh, next one. And the next one. There, should be. there we go. Thank you. Um, so before, he's eating with the Gentiles. They're on the left, very happy. And now there's a separation uh, running between Peter's table and the Gentile tables, uh, the non-Jewish tables. And not only Peter, but that action triggers a chain reaction through the whole church in Antioch. And so in verse 13, we see that the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, Barnabas was led astray. And so here's the deal. We got these visitors coming from Jerusalem, from James. They speak to Peter, and Peter then divides the whole church. So at dinner time, uh, it's, uh, it's different tables for Jewish people and for non-Jewish people. Now, um, we can turn that slide off now. That would be great. What, um, why, is Paul, why is Peter doing this, uh, is the question. Well, the dinner table acted like an identity badge. See, clean eating and detoxing and kind of uh, special diets aren't a 21st century invention. Actually, Israel got there first. Because when God called Israel, he called them to be separate from the nations around them. And he gave them a visual reminder of that distinction on the dinner plate. See, there were all sorts of laws about what was clean, what was unclean, what was okay to eat, what was un-okay, if that's a word, to eat, uh, what was uh, non-kosher, rather, uh, because he wanted them to see that actually they were different from the nations around them. So you can imagine it, can't you? Every time a Jewish person is walking along the street and they see their Gentile neighbor tucking into a pulled pork sandwich, don't be thinking about that now, Uh, back onto the text, pulled pork sandwich uh, or a prawn cocktail, they're thinking to themselves, we're not like them. We're different. We're distinct. And so it was important that a Jewish person didn't share their dining table with a non-Jewish person because the non-Jews wouldn't eat as you ate. Uh, Here's um, what a Jewish text says uh, on the slide uh, behind me. Uh, It says this, Eat not with them, that's the Gentiles, for their works are unclean. 
And you'll remember this in Acts chapter 10, Peter says these very words, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, or literally a Gentile. And so here's Peter acting just like a normal Jewish person. He's separating off from the Gentile tables and eating on a different, in a different place. But notice, here's the thing, notice that Peter has changed his mind. Uh, verse 12 tells us, doesn't it, that before certain men came from James, that he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now he's changed his mind. Uh, you can turn that slide off now, that's great. Thank you. So what is that, why is he, um, and that word separate there, it's a strong word, it comes from Matthew 25, when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And so here's Peter saying, actually, I'm separating off Jew and Gentile. Why does Peter do that? What's caused this change? Well, verse 12 tells us, doesn't it? It's because he was afraid of those who belonged to the super, uh, circumcision group, or literally of the circumcision. It's probably, uh, the commentators tell us, the, the, the Jewish population around them. See, Peter's heard that the Jewish population are getting antagonistic towards the church. And so, because of fear, he's starting to separate, to withdraw. And you can kind of picture how that would have worked. Imagine, for example, in our day, an extinction rebellion leader. They're as vegan as they come, they're carbon neutral, they live off soy a day and night. And imagine that leader was spotted in an Aberdeen Angus steakhouse, eating, uh, uh, sorry, sitting there with friends around, uh, tucking into rare steaks covered in peppercorn sauce. It doesn't matter if the leader's eating it or not, that's not really the question. But actually, there'd be serious questions about that leadership being raised, wouldn't there? How could you eat with these carnivores? How could you mix with these people? And it seems that the people from James are reporting that sort of reaction. They're saying, look, we're rubbing our Jewish neighbors' nose in it every time we eat with the Gentiles. Every time we pretend there's no separation, we're trampling on our heritage. And so... Peter decides to withdraw, to lessen the offense. One of the commentators quite helpfully points out that there could have been actually good reasons for this, good mission reasons. Uh, you can imagine the men from James saying, look, we don't need this fight. The church is as weak as it is, is already, already very weak. Why do we need this extra pressure? Let's just go back to eating as we always have done. They'll leave us alone. We don't need to cause offense. But Peter's, we see Peter here, don't we, reflecting a very human response. He's motivated by something that I'm sure motivates us all. He's motivated by fear. He's afraid. He's afraid of what his friends would say. And actually, Peter's change here is not down to some sophisticated theological idea. Really, it's down to peer pressure. He just wants to keep his head down. He acts like everyone around him. And he says to himself, look, it's okay. Look, I don't want to make Christians seem like they're weird to the outside world. I don't want to ram it down my Jewish neighbor's throats. And so he changes. But Paul, as we heard in the reading, has none of this, does he? At verse 11, we read that when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. 
Uh, the, the word there is face-to-face. I kind of imagine Paul squaring up, maybe that's too much, but squaring up to Peter. But it's a very strong kind of expression of the opposition. It's not a quiet word. It's not a private email. This is a very public rebuke of the apostle Peter. Why such a strong reaction, Paul? Surely this is just an issue of pragmatics. Everyone had been separating before, and here we are just doing it again. But for Paul, it's completely non-negotiable. See, what Peter's doing here is effectively denying the gospel. Have a look at what he says in verse 14. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, um, the way that's put it sounds quite mild, but not acting in line with the gospel is to be opposing the gospel. Uh, Last week we saw this, didn't we? We saw that Paul's ministry was described, how he came to realize the gospel and how he took it out. Uh, And look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. He says that he went to the pillars, um, these these, uh, apostles, uh, to uh, check his gospel. Uh, And look at what he says at the end of verse 2. He did that privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. See, Paul goes not to kind of say, oh, what's the gospel? But he already knows the gospel. He goes to check that he's not running in vain. Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain how he took Titus with him, who was a Greek, a, a non-Jew, and he is really encouraged because he wasn't made to circumcise Titus. Look at what it says in verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And so you see what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, Titus wasn't made to be Jewish, and that's a good thing because it means the gospel was preserved for you. But now look at what Peter's doing. See, he's standing opposed to it. He is insisting that people become like Jews. And that same phrase comes up in 2 verse 14, that they're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, maybe you think to ourselves, that seems a bit strong, doesn't it? I mean, how is it just some little decision about our dinner guests actually undermine the truth of the gospel? How is it Peter separating off has meant that he's somehow suddenly standing against the gospel? Well, Paul goes on to explain, and he does that using a new word. This is um, the word of the book that we... Um, need, to, uh, need to kind of get our heads around if we're to grasp this letter. It's the word justified or justification. Uh, I think I've got a picture of it here on the screen. Somewhere. No, I haven't. It's the word justified, and it's the word justification. So you have to imagine what that looks like in your heads uh, for a second. There it is. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure that's the most helpful slide, but anyway, justified. <laughs> but you'll remember it now, won't you? Because I've made such a big deal of it. But justified uh, means to declare in the right. In fact, in the original, there isn't a difference between justification and righteousness and those sort of words. They're both the same sort of word. And so when I read justified, I often think to myself, that means righteousified, if that makes sense. Uh, So, yeah, I invent a new word. But anyway, it is a word that comes from the courtroom. Imagine someone in a courtroom, they're presented before the judge... And the judge's job is to determine whether they're guilty or innocent. And if they're innocent, their job is to 
justify them, to declare them innocent of all the charges. Uh, if they're guilty, their job is to condemn them, to not justify them. And so uh, to be, uh, the question in the background here is, when it comes to God's courtroom, when we find ourselves in his dark at the end of time, what is the basis on which God will find us guilty or innocent? How will we be justified? And Paul reminds Peter of the answer in verse 16. We know that a man or woman is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. There's a lot going on in that verse, but here's essentially what he's saying. Look, God's verdict on us, what will it come down to? What would God say to us? Will he say, you're guilty, but it's okay because you've had a go at the law. You've tried to uh, eat the right foods. You've tried to keep the commandments. You've kept your carbon footprint down. You've done your recycling every Wednesday. Or will he say, no, you're guilty, and actually I need to condemn you because you are guilty, but Christ has stepped in and taken that judgment, and because it's fallen on him, it was not, it's not going to fall on you. See, there's no question, is there? If God is a good judge, if he doesn't just ignore wrongdoing, actually, it is the second option. Because actually, sin needs to be atoned for, and it has in Christ. See, verse 16 puts a great divide there. I think we've got this on the slide as well. That how are we justified before God? Well, it is not through observing the law, and it is through faith in Christ alone. But again, we've still got to ask that question, haven't we? How is Peter playing around with the guest list at dinner time, shaping and undermining that truth? How does his decision about his dinner guests mean he's opposing that gospel we've heard about there? Well, actually, Peter's communicating something about the gospel as he separates off. Uh, we can turn that slide off now, that's great. So it's important to see this, that Peter is not denying that we need Christ to be saved. He's not saying forget Christ, go to the law. He's not saying that at all. Nor are these false teachers coming into the church saying forget the law, uh, forget Christ, go to the law. Rather, they're saying you need something extra. Christ is not enough on his own. To give you an example of this, um, one of my favorite things in the world to do is to go to a theme park. I absolutely love it. I could spend all day there, every day of the year, and have a great time. And um, yeah, I haven't been for a few weeks, so I'm getting withdrawal symptoms already. Uh, but there's something that's kind of happened in recent years that's kind of marred my experience of theme parks. I don't know if you've uh, come across this, but they're called queue jumper passes. They're awful, absolutely awful. You pay a huge amount to get through the door, uh, of the theme park, and um, there's this extra thing you can pay, uh, which means, uh, actually we can turn that slide off now, that's great, uh, there's this extra thing you can pay, uh, which means you get to jump the queue. I mean, it's terrible, it brings out my inner communist as I sit there in the queue, or stand there in the queue, thinking, how are they advancing up the line just because they're rich and they can afford it? And that's kind of what's going on here, it's, we're all in the theme park, we're all in Christ, but actually, there's this extra special thing Peter's talking about here, the extra laws. 
And the question is, do we need that extra thing to be part of God's people? Do we need the law? Do we need circumcision? Do we need a university degree? Do we need the right social class? Do we need to be of the right race? Do we need the right accent? Do we need the right look? Or is it Christ and Christ alone? And as Peter withdraws from certain groups, he's saying you need something more to be at the top table. But Paul has none of it. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. You've all come through the same route. Those divisions don't mean, uh, aren't essential to justification now. Now, the final question is, how does this matter to us? Why, why do we need to know about this dispute? Well, if you know your church history, you'll know that these verses are some of the most famous in the kind of reformation of the church. Uh, in fact, the Protestant church, which became the Church of England, um, came out of dispute over these very verses, verse 16, for example, uh, they saw that actually justification is not through extra things like the mass or taking communion or baptism or doing good works. Actually, it is through Christ and Christ alone. And to be honest, if you asked me on Monday or Tuesday, I thought that was the sermon I was going to preach this morning. I was going to say, what are we trusting in? Are we trusting in our good works or are we looking to Christ alone for our salvation? And that is a fair question. We're going to come back to it next week. Uh, these verses uh, come into next week's passage as well. But, but actually, that's not the main, main thrust of this passage. I was grateful for a previous vicar of mine showing me that actually these, were, these verses are hugely encouraging. They're not here to kind of unsettle us. They're not here to prompt that question, what are you trusting in? Are you really trusting in Christ or are you looking to something else? See, these verses are here to encourage us because Peter listened to them. And Peter continued not to separate. Um, in Acts chapter 15, uh, this question comes up again. Do non-Jews have to be circumcised to be God's people? And here's what Peter, of all people, says uh, on the screen behind me. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. That is Acts chapter 11. Uh, Acts chapter 15 uh, and verse 10. This is Peter speaking before the church leaders in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 15, page 1110, he says this, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus we are saved, just as they are. It's an incredible change for Peter, isn't it? Here's Peter saying, no, actually, we're going to separate. And now he's saying, no. Actually, we're saved by grace just as they are. There's no separation now. There's no difference, essentially, when it comes to being justified. 
And because of that, the gospel is now for all people. The gospel has been maintained so it can go out to the world. See, imagine for a second that Peter got his way, that Paul backed down at this point, and Peter said, no, actually, I'm going to insist on this. We need to separate. Well, I guess many of us will be thinking, what if I'm not in that top tier? How can I get in that top tier? Maybe as we take the gospel out, we're thinking to ourselves, I'm only going to tell the gospel to those people who feel like they're in the top tier, or those people who feel like they somehow deserve salvation, or those people who somehow seem like they're going to change. I'm only going to take the gospel to the right, rightly educated, or the people of the right background, or the right look. See, you see here that Peter didn't get his way, and that meant that the gospel was through Christ alone. And so, whether it's the richest or the poorest, the president in the White House, or the peasant girl in a slum in uh, uh, a Brazilian shantytown, the city dweller or the um, country bumpkin, the man, the woman, whatever it is, because Christ is the way we're justified, there's no place for having a top table or splitting off or separating or thinking we need something more. Now, of course, there is a place for learning from Peter's mistake, and we should ask ourselves the question, what do we trust in it? But actually, it is actually much more encouraging than that, because it shows us that why we should and find joy in standing for the gospel, why we need not shrink back. A lot of people say, don't they, that our world is more divided than ever, and um, you know, my feeling is that that's probably true. And lots of people say, oh, the reason is Twitter or kind of 24 News or globalization. And sure, they've probably all got a part to play. People now polarized between Biden and Trump and liberal and conservative and men and women, woke or free speech, remain or leave, Samson or Apple, we divide over everything. And our world also longs for something different, doesn't it? but it's clueless when it comes to the solution. But actually, here's Paul saying, look, here's the answer. It is the gospel. It's as we say we are all guilty, all deserving of God's condemnation, that we see that Christ has died for all. So whoever we are, whatever our background, whatever our look, whatever our education, no matter what our neighbors are like around us, all can come into God's courtroom and be justified in Christ. See, this is the route to be in one family. This is the answer to the world's polarization. As the world fights out there, the church should model this one family, this oneness. And the way we get there is through holding on to this gospel, declaring it to one another, and being bold as we take it out to the world. I wonder, have you seen the gospel like that? Have you seen that Christ is enough on his own? There's no place for adding to him, and there's no place for looking down our noses at others. But most encouragingly, he's died for all so that we can always proclaim that he is for all. Our gracious Father, how we praise you that the Lord Jesus gave himself for us that he looked 
uh, he looked not to our own works, our own backgrounds, our own ethnicity, but looked on us in mercy. And we pray, Father, that you would encourage us with that truth in our own hearts, but also, Father, give us great confidence as we stand and take that truth out to those around us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.